As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter 1. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy-to-read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath. You are listening to part one of a special edition of the C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath brought to you by Premier. I'm Ruth Jackson and over this first series, Alistair and I have been looking at some of C.S. Lewis's thoughts around significant topics such as the meaning of life, stories and suffering. You can find out more about the C.S. Lewis Podcast by heading to cslewispodcast.com. C.S. Lewis is one of the most influential voices in modern Christianity. The 20th century British writer and lay theologian has profoundly impacted Christians around the world and brought many atheists and agnostics to faith in Jesus. One person whose faith was greatly encouraged by the writings of C.S. Lewis is Professor Alistair McGrath. Both men were raised in Northern Ireland, studied at Oxford University and went on to become professors there. They also both came to faith from atheism slightly later in life. Alistair has written numerous books on C.S. Lewis, including a seminal biography, C.S. Lewis, A Life, which is published by Hodder. If you would like to get your hands on a free copy of this book, then we would love you to post about the C.S. Lewis podcast on social media. Use the hashtag C.S. Lewis podcast on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram and include a link to our website, cslewispodcast.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please don't forget to like, rate and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. And obviously, the more you share about the podcast, the more likely you are to win one of Professor Alistair McGrath's books. And Alistair's book is actually the focus of today's episode. In part one of this special edition, we've delved into the archives of another premier podcast, Unbelievable. Back in 2013, host Justin Briley spoke to Alistair McGrath about C.S. Lewis, A Life, which had just been published. They looked at Lewis's faith journey alongside answering listener questions. Tune in next week to hear part two of their conversation. Alistair, thank you very much for joining me on the well, show today. It's always good to be with you, Justin. It's great to have you back. Thank you for coming in today. Um, this has been a labour of love, hasn't it, I'd say, this, this book. It, it feels like you've done an enormous amount of research here because there's so much to read about it's been a very long labour of love I can tell you but it was worth it I felt you know if we're going to do this let's do it properly and so mm. there's a huge amount of research behind it although I try and keep the the research in the footnotes so we can tell a good story mm, absolutely and um from the outset, probably it's worth noting that, that your own journey somewhat mirrors Lewis in as much as you came from an atheist background, were converted at university. 
Um, do you feel like you have a strong affinity for Lewis? In, in the I certainly have an affinity. I mean, Lewis and I were both born in Belfast, grew up in Northern Ireland, both went to Oxford as students, both discovered Christianity as stu- uh, Lewis a bit later than me, uh, both became Oxford Dons, mm. both think Christianity is well worth defending. I mean, Lewis does all of this much better than I do, but I still <laughs> feel, you know, I, I, can, I can make sense of this, I can relate to this, and maybe that helps me just, you know, describe some things better than others might be able to. And people still seem fascinated with the man, Lewis, 50 years on from his death. This is the, the anniversary year of his, his death, 50 years on. Um, why, why does he remain one of the most talked about intellectuals today, 50 years on? Well, you're right, he does remain so. And in fact, he himself didn't expect that to happen at all. He said, five years after I'm gone, that's it. But he's bounced back in a very big way. And I think that one of the reasons he's bounced back is that he does say some very interesting things, and he says them very well. And he says them using stories very often, which are extremely accessible. And so when you compare rather dull, pedantic accounts of... Um, whatever you want, you know, this doctrine, that doctrine. And then you read Lewis. It's almost if things come to life. And Lewis, I think, is a wonderful person to engage and through whom to engage key Christian ideas. So in the research for the book, um, one of the key sort of resources was um, a a complete almost uh, collection of Lewis's correspondence. Um, He was an incredible man of letters, literally, as in corresponding with people via letters, something that sort of almost died out today very in many ways. Um, This must have been a really rich resource for actually getting beyond just the things he's written in books and his radio lectures and and some of the biographies to actually seeing his day-to-day life as related to other people. Well, that's right. And certainly the the final volume of the correspondence appeared in 2006. And that's, you know, the collection's about a thousand pages long. And these are all letters Lewis wrote. I think, particularly in his younger period, with no expectation of these ever being read by anybody (laughs) else. So he expressed himself very bluntly, very openly, and it really gives you an access into the way he's thinking. So it was great reading those and everything else he wrote in chronological order. And in fact, we even added a new letter to that one we discovered in the Nobel archives. So that was, he proposed J.R.R. Tolkien for the 1961 Nobel Prize in Literature, which is very interesting. There you go, there you go. Uh, And he he was very... um, committed to writing i mean particularly letters to children because once narnia you know obviously became so popular he started receiving letters from all over the world um and and he pretty much tried to answer them all didn't he well, he did, and he didn't have a secretary. He did them all himself, in hand. I mean, he he couldn't mm. type. He had a, a problem <laughs> with his thumbs. He just couldn't type, and he didn't like typing. He didn't either, like did typing. He? he thought it was a very the, the rhythm disturbed you. And he, he he was very old fashioned in that sense. But certainly, Lewis was someone who really took writing very very seriously. He wrote to his very close friend Arthur Greaves once and saying, "Look, if something is bothering you, write it down. Writing is a great therapy. Mm. It's a great way of dealing with things." And particularly with his book, A Grief Observed, you can see he's trying to cope with bereavement by writing down his thoughts as a way almost of coming to terms with them. There are probably still people out there who have letters from Lewis that haven't been seen but that, that, that he sent to them and so who knows there's probably more to be discovered as as you go along but um, uh, it wasn't just the letters obviously uh, you, you went back through all the the books that he'd written and the, both his well-known works and his lesser-known works. I, I suppose what many people don't realise because they perhaps have only interacted either with the Narnia stories or the apologetic work, is Lewis 
for, in many ways, that was a sideline. I mean, his major kind of life work was in medieval literature, his academic field, which hardly anyone probably really knows that much about. Well, that's right. People very often describe Lewis as a children's writer or perhaps even as a Christian apologist. But mm. his day job, what he was paid for, <laughs> was actually as a, an, an Oxford English don. And he rose to fame very quickly at Oxford. He wrote a superb book in 1936, which won major prizes. And that established him as a major figure on the Oxford literary scene. And then Cambridge creates this new chair in medieval Renaissance English, and they, they invite Lewis to be the first occupant of that chair. So he clearly had an, an enormous professional reputation. That's faded. But of mm. course, in his day, he was a giant in the field yeah. of English literature. And very popular among the students. Uh, it's reported that his lectures were some of the most popular in Oxford when he was lecturing there. What, what was the appeal that Lewis seemed to have? Well, I think the appeal was to First of all, one of his audience once said, look, it's almost as if Lewis has inwardly digested the structure of these works he's talking about. He talks about them in a way that makes them accessible, that opens them up in ways that nobody else did. But secondly, he was a very good speaker, and he didn't use notes. He, in effect, went in knowing what he wanted to say and said it. And, you know, it's no surprise the BBC thought this man could do broadcasting. He was very, very good indeed. <laughs> I, I saw John Lennox speaking recently on um, his memory himself. I think this must have been while Lewis was in Cambridge and, and John was there and just caught the end of his time. And But uh, describes Lewis entering a, lecture, a packed lecture theatre, sort of unwrapping his scarf from around him, taking off his coat and speaking from as soon as he entered at the back up to the front, delivering almost, you know, just a stream of, you know, his, his talk without any notes. And then... As, as the hour is finished, sort of reversing the process, putting his coat back on, wrapping his car, scarf around him, talking the whole time until he backs out of the room and goes. <laughs> it's a sort of... Yeah, well, it's right. That's the way he did it. It was a performance. <laughs> um, we're going to talk um, about Lewis, his conversion, which is quite significant in the book. You, you've redated that significantly. Um, we're going to talk, uh, of course, about his apologetics, um, because that's where a lot of people will be interested to know where you stand on some of his arguments today, some 50 years on. Obviously, in his early life, um, Lewis found Christianity, faith, unbelievable. He was um, a committed atheist in many ways, Alistair. Uh, now, his his journey to Christianity is pro probably one of the best-known parts of his life, um, and oft quoted from Surprised by Joy, I think, this idea of him being the most reluctant convert in all of England and so on. But one of the interesting aspects of the book, uh, is just a historical fact, is that you believe you've actually redated um, the, 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 the year that Lewis had that conversion experience, even against his own testimony of it. So just describe to us what, what this is all about. Well, that's right. His conversion is very interesting. Um, as preparation for this, I read everything Lewis wrote in chronological order. And in Surprise by Joy, he says, in a Trinity term of 1929, that means April, May, June 1929, I became, as you said, the most reluctant convert in all England. And uh, he, I'm sure he was the most reluctant convert in all England, but it was in 1930. It's very, very <laughs> clear. If you read his correspondence, if you look at all of this closely, he's out by a year. 
Now, let me make it clear. I mean, Lewis is a brilliant writer, but it doesn't necessarily mean he's good on dates. In fact, in his later letters, he says, I was useless on dates. There are at least two other significant misidentification of dates mm. in Surprise by Joy. I'm just saying there's a third one we need to add to that list. <laughs> 1930 is when it all changes. Uh, but no one's picked this up until now, it would appear. Yes, that's right. And for a while, I felt very, very lonely. You know, <laughs> I thought, am I going mad? Uh, but, but also, I mean, it was absolutely clear the research method using reading everything in the mm. right order, mm. there's, a, there's a sea change in 1930. Yeah. It's obvious. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I thought, well, look, we've got to put this out and see what people think. The overwhelming response from Lewis scholars is, you're right. So we'll see how this pans out. Now, just describe a little the, the process of his conversion to Christian faith, because as far as I'm aware, he first of all, as it were, became a theist, um, was con- became convicted that there, there is a God, um, and this was on a bus journey that, where he describes starting off the bus journey an atheist and ending it a theist. Uh, but Christianity would become would be a little bit later. So, so just describe a bit the, the, the process. Well, let's let's look at three phases: the atheist phase, the theist phase, the Christian phase. The atheist phase was real. In his early correspondence, he's absolutely explicit: "I am an atheist." That Christianity has been shown to be wrong by science. The standard scientific account of why people believe in God is a kind of delusion. It's just a, a story we tell to console ourselves. Sounds familiar. Absolutely, <laughs> things haven't changed. Uh, science has changed, but not that. Um, And then he goes into the trenches in the First World War and sees massive suffering. And that reinforces his atheism. Mm. Why has God let this happen? So undoubtedly an atheist. However, as he begins to read literature in particular and study ancient philosophy, he begins to think, look, actually, this this is not quite as straightforward as I thought. We need to wave a great big complicated sign here. (laughs) It's not that straightforward. And he begins to think, look, if there were a God, that kind of way makes an awful lot of sense of things. So we see a gradual process from, I would say, about 1920 to about 1926, 7 of Lewis, in effect, saying, look, God does actually make a lot of sense as a hypothesis. I don't believe in that. But, you know, if that, it does make some sense. W- would describing him at that point as an agnostic possibly be more accurate? Yes, I think atheist? it would be a sort of agnostic who's beginning to see things might be more interesting than mm. he thought. Mm. And then something else begins to enter into the equation. He begins to experience something which he interprets as the approach of God. And that really leads him to this transition, to this conversion. He at one point describes it as a reconversion, in effect saying, look, uh, I God was not just an idea, it's a reality. And that happens, I say, in 1930, mm. but certainly there's no doubt that that's happened. And the real issue is, you know, um, what led him to that conclusion? And the answer seems to be a number of things. The two I would single out are intellectually, this makes an awful lot of sense, but also he reads a lot of literature. And it comes to this view that actually Christian writers have a much greater much greater sense of how to represent reality, which reflects the resilience of their worldview. That's mm. the key point. And mm. so he begins to, for literary reasons, think God makes a lot of sense. I can imagine some atheists thinking, OK, well, perhaps you can get to a sort of theism intellectually, you know, and, and obviously Lewis would go on to defend certain intellectual arguments for um, for theism. Full-blooded orthodox Christianity seems a bit of a leap. Uh, I mean, what what was the process that took Lewis all the way there, as it were, to defending that kind of quite full-bodied view of God as Trinity, as Jesus being 
um, God incarnate and so on. Because that, there is something of a leap, isn't there, from theism to that? There is. And at this point, we need to bring in J.R.R. Tolkien, mm-hmm. who became very close to Lewis in late 1920s. And we know that um, in the autumn of 1931, Lewis and Tolkien had a walk late in the evening in Magdalen College Gardens. And they talked about myth. Now, I'd explain immediately that by myth, they do not mean something invented out of thin mm. air to mm. deceive. What they meant is a, a story that is told that resonates with something much deeper and which begins to give us a way of making sense of things, not a sense of ideas, a story. And Tolkien said, look, I study myths professionally. Christianity is a true myth which makes sense of every other myth. And Lewis was, in effect, blown away by this because it, it said two things to him. Number one, this is, this is more than just God being an idea. This is something about reality. It's about a way of accessing reality. And he saw immediately how the story of Christianity fitted into this. So that was a very significant moment for him. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, Lewis studied classics, and he had a huge regard for classical myth. He also loved the Nordic myths as well. And he began to realize that if Tolkien was right, then... Greek myths, Nordic myths were in effect reaching out towards something they hadn't grasped, but it was a gleam of truth mm. which was incomplete and inadequate. And he suddenly realized how this meant he did not have to abandon these, but could accommodate them within this enhanced way of thinking. And that was a landmark. Uh, Lewis mm. converted mm. to Christianity, and that actually was something he explored the practical artworking of for the next 10 years. And when you say that the content of his correspondence changed significantly at this point, what what particularly did you notice as you went from the pre sort of 1930 phase to the post 1930 phase as, as as very different in the way he was a sort of buoyancy or excitedness? He, he's come across something that that really is exciting him, and that's very very clear, especially in the autumn of 1931, where in effect he he moves on to a new phase where suddenly it's as if someone's turned the light on. He sees things in a new way and thought, "My God, why did I used to think that? This makes sense." He's yeah. excited, not just this makes sense, but I have found something that gives gives me a way of seeing things in a new way. It makes sense of literature. It makes sense of all the things that matter to me. Let's explore this wonderful new landscape that's opened up. Let's ask one of the listener questions at this point. Um, so I think this is an in- interesting one um, from from uh, Caleb, who says, what, what aspects of the real Lewis do evangelicals miss out on by adopting him as their patron, St. Jack? And, and this sort of ties in, as we mentioned, to the uh, the popularity of Lewis, especially in the United States, where it's probably true to say Lewis is more popular there than, than here in his in the UK. Um, but is there an element of hagiography of, of sort of sort of making this man a saint when? He was obviously human as well. Well, I think one of the things I do in the biography is make it very, very clear that Lewis was a flawed human being, like all of us. So Mm. there's no hagiography there at all. I think evangelicals in in America really didn't like Lewis to begin with. In the 1960s, they say, this guy smoked, this guy drank. You know, he's not one of us. Exactly. But as they began to read Lewis, particularly in the 1980s, they began to realize there's something here that enhances our basic vision of 
of faith. And it was very much the appeal to the imagination, the use of stories, and also Lewis's very, very good rational explanation of faith. What are they missing out on? Well, I think one of the things they miss out on is Lewis's very strong sense that, um, if I can put it like this, that... um, that Christianity does more than just make sense of things. That's a very, that's mm. something that evangelicals are very mm. good at. But actually really saying to them, look, you need to discover the imaginative side of faith. And when you do that, that opens up things in a very, very big way. Now, a lot of evangelicals discover this and they stay evangelicals, but they are richer evangelicals than they were beforehand. Um, another person asks, um, <clears throat> why do some evangelical, he says Anglicans, think that Lewis was not a Christian? I, I'm not sure why Anglican particularly. That doesn't strike me as particularly the the churchmanship that, that might question Lewis's faith. Uh, but I have read on the Internet there are sites out there which claim, oh, Lewis was never a Christian and so on. What, what, where are those particular views coming from as far as you can tell? Yes, I don't know any evangelical Anglicans who would question <laughs> Lewis at all. But certainly in the States, in more fundamentalist circles, there would be. I mean, Lewis drank. Well, that's, mm. that, that's off limits. Right. You know, Lewis smoked. That's off limits. Mm. Uh, you know, really there's a, this a- antipathy towards Lewis, which is very very interesting. The real reason simply is that people aren't listening to these guys, they're listening to Lewis. They feel threatened by him. And the real issue is authority. Who are people listening to? And the answer is that in the States and here in the UK an awful lot of people are saying, actually we think Lewis is a very good spiritual guide. We'll listen to him and not to these guys. And these guys don't like that. But it is surprising the broad appeal that Lewis nevertheless has across quite a large strata of the church. And so you will get, you know, quite conservative evangelicals who who love his stuff. You you also get those in, let's say, the more liberal end of the church who still uh, enjoy much of his writing and, and find a lot to draw on there. So, so he does seem to, to have an extraordinary wide appeal that, yes, that many does. Christian writers would probably yes, envy. Including Catholics as well. I mean, yes. I mean especially in the United States, they yes. really love him. Absolutely. And um, and he was friends, of course, in his own life with with many Catholics and so on. Um, fascinating stuff. Uh, we're nearly getting to the end of the first part of the show. And, and look, look how time is flying by. So much more I want to ask about about Lewis. Um, just before we go to a break, the, the title of the, the, the sort of subtitle of the book is Eccentric Genius Reluctant Prophet. Well, I, I know the eccentric genius bit, you know, that that's pretty clear. You know, if, for anyone who starts to look into Lewis's life, but, but reluctant prophet interests me. Why, why do you choose that as a title for Lewis? I think we were trying to say, look, Lewis said things that needed to be said, but he felt others could say them much better and were in better positions to say that, and they didn't. So mm. Lewis said, right, because they're not doing it, I will. I don't want to, but it looks as if people are looking to me to, in effect, speak to them about the nature of Christianity, to critique trends in society, and I'm going to do it. He didn't want to. I mean, he mm. didn't seek publicity, but he yeah. was very much concerned that these things be said. And because others failed to say them, he said, right, I'll get them out there. I'll say them. And he, of course, came on the scene at a time when the BBC were looking for someone who could speak to a wide audience. These were the wartime broadcasts that really where he shot to fame in in the UK, Um, because I think the BBC were sort of uh, looking for someone who was perhaps 
a little bit outside the church scene, wasn't representing a particular denomination and, and had the ability to express things to an audience. And Lewis seemed to fit all those categories, didn't he? He did. I mean, his Oxford lectures showed he was a superb communicator. And he spoke as, as he kept saying, a mere layman of the Church of England. In other words, I have no authority at all. I'm just going to tell you what I think. And people listened and said, we like this. So no boring bishops, just someone who spoke in intelligible, interesting ways and captivated them. Did this irk any of the more professional theologians and so on who were out there maybe seeing Lewis's fantastic success um, as a layperson, essentially. It did then, and it does now. Uh, <laughs> because people find Lewis very, very accessible, they will, in effect, say, this is our preferred theologian. Others would say, look, what about us? <laughs> and there's a sense of feeling threatened. But actually, what I will tell you is, I know so many people who came to the study of theology through Lewis. Mm. He's the gateway for many of them. They go on and read other guys as well. Of course sure. they do. But Lewis drew people in who I want to suggest otherwise might not have been drawn in at all. Do you get the sense that he was reading very widely contemporary theologians, or, or, or was that not particularly his concern? No, he did not. Um, he hardly read any 20th or 19th century theologians. Really, he went back to the Renaissance, to the Middle Ages, and found so much there that was exciting, he talked about that instead. <laughs> Which is perhaps why he irked some of the establishment at the time. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this special edition of the C.S. Lewis podcast with Professor Alistair McGrath, which was originally broadcast on Unbelievable in 2013. Tune in next week to hear part two of their conversation where Alistair answers more listener questions. I'm Ruth Jackson, and if you enjoyed this podcast, then please don't forget to like, rate and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. If you would like to get your hands on a free copy of one of Alistair's books about C.S. Lewis, then we would love you to post about this new C.S. Lewis podcast on social media. Use the hashtag C.S. Lewis podcast on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram and include a link to our website, cslewispodcast.com. 